Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. If you'll stand with me tonight and turn to the book of Acts chapter number 6. Acts chapter number 6. Amen. Just a reminder that the ladies' Christmas supper is December the 8th at 7 p.m. Underwritten by the ladies' department. And then the adult Christmas supper is December the 17th. And there will be costs forthcoming for that. Amen. We got a baby dedication this coming Sunday. Amen. Pardon me? Yes, and ladies' meetings tomorrow night as well, yes. At 7 p.m. We have a baby dedication, though, coming this Sunday. Um, David Powell, Brother Powell's son, and, and Adriana going to dedicate Landon. See, I'm doing good, isn't it? I'm doing good, yes. Going to dedicate Landon, amen, on Sunday. And so that's great. Said they've been considering that. And whenever Sunday was talking about giving monetary things, they're thinking about the gift that God given them through that child and wanting to give it back. So that's a tremendous, that's very commendable. Amen. So going to be doing that. Be mindful of that. My wife and I are just very quick and coming on going to prison. Praise God. Marysville, Ohio. We'll be going up there with a team of several, several people. And uh, to the women's reformatory up there. Going to have a great time. Last time we were there, 200 received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And so we're looking forward to just expecting great things again this time as well. National Youth Convention around the corner for young people, those young hearts such as myself. Amen. And so we're looking forward to that as well. Acts chapter number 6. I want to begin with verse number 1. And I'm going to read the first seven verses. And we're going to endeavor to get through this chapter here tonight. In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily administration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer, to the ministry of the word. And the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, we can say that one, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. The word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. The great company of the priests were obedient to the faith, to the faith. Let's pray together tonight. Lord, we come. Touch us anew and afresh, God, by your spirit, God, as we congregate, Lord, our attention around about your word. I pray, oh, Lord, that you're able to help us, Lord Jesus, in the next few moments, God, to glean from your scriptures, Lord, of what they may speak and minister, Lord, into the lives, God, of your people, Lord. I want to be appreciative, Lord, for what the word is speaking, Lord, to us this evening. God, help us to learn thereby, grow thereby. Lord, we'll not fail to praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everybody say amen. Amen. God bless you in Jesus' name tonight. I'm going to just simply call this this evening, God gives increase. God gives increase. Acts chapter number 6 is kind of a pivotal pivotal chapter in the book of Acts uh, whenever it concerns the gospel actually spreading beyond Jerusalem. They received that promise in Acts 1 and 8 how it would be Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And Acts chapter 6 is a hinge on which that swings very greatly. We read of in verse number 1, the Grecians there are mentioned. 
These Grecians are nothing more but they are Greek-speaking Jews. They are Greek-speaking Jews. Normally, Jews uh, spoke Aramaic, but they were the Greek-speaking Jews, and they are Jews that came from other nations for whatever reason, uh, having been dispersed or uh, went to other lands outside of their motherland of Israel. They were from other nations and now that they are settling back or coming back to Jerusalem, they are Greek-speaking Jews. And having been uh, estranged from their motherland, then not very, maybe a few of them uh, schooled in the art of speaking Aramaic, but mostly it is just speaking in, in, in the, Greek, the Greek language. And so with that being said, this pivotal point then for the book of Acts is this. Here is, uh, now we see the Grecians, these that are Greek-speaking Jews, are being ministered to, being ministered in a very literal way uh, with money and food and things of that nature, but also with the Word of God, also with the teachings of God's Word. So that's already causing the circle of it just to be Jew, Aramaic speaking Jew only. That, that's got a little larger. And it's from there, from this, this, this hinge point of Acts 6, and we'll read then Acts 7. We'll read about Stephen, his long dissertation that he gives. But when we come to Acts 8 then, there's an opening up then of the gospel and the teachings of the Lord to the Samaritans and also to an Ethiopian eunuch which will have impact upon his country. And so the circles just get a little larger till finally we come to Acts 9 and is the conversion of Saul who uh, is going to impact greatly the Gentile people as we learn in the word of God. So Acts 6 is very pivotal in the scripture. All right, very pivotal. And so when we see this, we see... Uh, illustrated then a little again. If you go down to verse number 9, and we'll get that to, to there eventually, there are several different synagogues that are within uh, Jerusalem and around about Jerusalem. And these synagogues are made up of primarily uh, people. They would almost just disperse and be gathered of people that spoke their language or tongue. It's the way it would work. Uh, if, if It wasn't like you had Aramaic people and Greek-speaking people that was in the same place, but they would normally gather together according to their, their language groups. So there was a natural grouping that evolved in these synagogues from how the people spoke, literally. If they all spoke, if they spoke Aramaic, he was probably going to go to this synagogue. If he was going to speak Greek, he probably went to this synagogue and uh, quite frankly I've even seen that maybe on a spiritual level people that speak the same language there seems to be a natural grouping together of people that speak the same language I'm not talking about a literal sense but in a spiritual sense there's something though that we must be aware of as we enter into Acts chapter number six and some things we have already seen and that is the tactics of the enemy against the church you know the enemy has one song and he sings it over and over and over again. And it gets stuck in your brain. And the tactics that Satan uses primarily uh, for the church and believers is this. It really boils down to this. Distractions. Distractions. We've seen early on in the book of Acts, one means in which he has approached the church is through persecution. Persecution of mind, emotion, body. What that really boils down to is this. It's a distraction. It's a distraction. We have also seen that Satan would come in and try his tactics as he did in the last chapter, the opening of the last chapter. Remember the whole scenario with Ananias and Sapphira? They lied against the Holy Ghost. They lied against God. Another approach for Satan that somehow caused turmoil in the church is just plainly sin. And sin within the church can become a distraction. Mm -hmm. It can become a distraction to other people that are within the church. Well, what we're coming to here in Acts chapter number 6 is just another facet, again, of distraction. But it's coming through a new venue, a new way. And what's happening right here, there is dissension between the Greek-speaking Jews and the Aramaic-speaking Jews. There is dissension. If I can, there's bickering. Distractions happen, and it's happening inside the church. Another form of dissension can be gossip. Another form of dissension can be just little petty stuff. You know, the enemy, he doesn't have to have something large. If he'll find a thing that works, he'll work on it. Just, just distraction. 
And so what we learn in Scripture is that after everything of these days have been done and, and there seems to be that the men, uh, the disciples are still preaching and ministering in the name of Jesus and they're counting themselves worthy to have suffered the persecution that they have suffered, but they continue with their gospel, continue with their message. Chapter 6 opens up and tells us then as a result of all this that the number of the disciples have been multiplied. Been multiplied. They're still preaching, they're still teaching, but they're under persecution. Yet they're multiplying under that. It goes very, very hand, hand in glove with the Old Testament of Exodus whenever the children of Israel was under Egyptian bondage. They had hard taskmasters. They were to serve with rigor, make brick even without straw. But the Bible seems to relate to us that to the proportion that they were persecuted, they grew. That although they were being persecuted, they were growing by leaps and bounds in, in, in spite of it. And so the disciples are multiplying, and here is a principle that goes, uh, maybe perhaps unnoticed, but it should be in the forefront of our minds, that growth inevitably equals problems. Growth in a church will mean you are going to increase the number of problems within the church. Someone say, I'm human. Welcome. You get more humanity into the square footage of this building, and there will be problems or a greater potential, might I say, for problems. And so normally we see here, this is speaking of the Jewish widows here who were normally cared for uh, by the church. They were cared for, mind you, if they did not have the ability to care for themselves or if they did not have any family to care for them. You can read of that very in deep in depth in 1 Timothy chapter number 5. It goes on to qualify what a widow uh, is and how she should be cared for if they didn't have anybody else and if they were mindful of God and if they weren't being a talebearer and a gossiper. First Timothy chapter number 5 spells all of that out. But right here in the midst of all of this, notice. So they're trying to feed the widows and give monetary funding, if you will, to the widows, the Grecians and the Hebrews, the Hebrews being the Aramaic-speaking Jews. And in the process of trying to do ministry, problems break out. Welcome to church life. When I would do good, Paul said, evil is present with me. There's not just a war in these members of the flesh against the spirit. There's a war in these members of the flesh against the spirit. So in the process of trying to do ministry, feed the widows, being mindful of the widows, a problem arose. And it came from that they were trying to do something to or in the name of the Lord. So please don't discount that you're on the wrong track just because you're facing distractions. You cannot just simply draw a hard, fast, direct line and say, well, if it's on to be hard, then it must not be of God. You can't draw that line. That is not always the case, not always the scenario. Can someone say amen? Now here's the thing, though. These, the Grecians were the ones that were feeling like they were being left out. These, these, these Greek-speaking uh, Jews who were from other nations but have now come back to, to Israel, to Jerusalem mainly. I don't know why they was... I don't know if because after Pentecost and what they experienced after coming from all these other nations, coming there, experiencing that, that these widows thought, you know what, we're going to stay right here. Honey, this is where it happened. You know, everybody, I want to be where the fire is or so on and so forth. Knowing that that could go with them, but you know how our people's minds work. So for some reason, they stayed there in Jerusalem. They're trying to be cared for. But them not having always been around Israel or Jerusalem, but have been in other nations, all of this, by and large, the outpouring of the Spirit is really new to most everybody. It is new to everybody that's in this scenario. And so it is not a surprise that there are some problems that arose. Because listen to me, and here's where we gotta, we gotta get our mind and heart in tune, those that have been, been Christians, and I say that not, not loosely, but very, very <laughs> specifically, those of you that have been Christians for 15 and 20 years, we need to put this in our mind, and that is this. Spiritually, you listening? Spiritually immature people in the church will come about as having more needs than established saints. 
Let me say it like this. I'm not always, but most of the time will tend to be a little bit more needy and may feel like they are neglected. Now, no, I said spiritually immature people because you could be around here for 25 years and not growing up spiritually in those 25 years and still be one that feels like you're neglected. Somebody hearing what I just said? Uh, this is what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 1. The Apostle Paul says and says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you, I could not speak unto you, un, unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Whenever I talk, I couldn't talk to you as spiritual. I had to talk to you like you was just a newborn in the things of God. Look at verse 3. For ye are yet carnal. He was relating being like a newborn in Christ similar to being carnal because whenever you're not maturing spiritually in God, you're not far from where the life you once lived. And he says, for ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you. Now look, here is the result of still being yet carnal or still being yet as babes in Christ, still yet being spiritually immature. For there is among you envying and strife and divisions. And are you not carnal and walk as men? In other words, he said, we got, we got problems here, some envians and strife, and that's not to say that we never have that as more spiritual Christians, but the, the, the repetition, the likelihood of that is more when you're a newborn babe in Christ. And so this is going on in the early church. Somebody feels like they're being neglected from the daily ministration. Well, they're still young babes. They're still, by and large, spiritually immature. So they are probably going to contend with feelings of, of being neglected or, or overlooked or not seen for whatever the reason may be. And the Bible says that somehow this was brought to the attention of the twelve, the twelve apostles, because they gather together the multitude then of the disciples and they have a powwow over the scenario. And look though what the Bible says there arose a murmuring. Everybody say murmur. There arose a murmuring. I would dare to say that's probably how the twelve apostles finally heard about it. Let's state a principle here. Leaders, pastor, we cannot deal with problems that we don't know about. Cannot deal with problems we do not know about. Here is though, my preference is not to find out about them through the venue of murmuring. Here is the definition of murmuring. They did it in the Old Testament. Here is the definition of murmuring. It happens when you complain about a perceived problem to people that can't do anything about it. Amen? So all that does, though, all that does is then maybe it may breed an idea in the minds of those that can't do anything about it and they didn't have that idea to begin with, but since you mentioned it, you know what? I've been kind of feeling neglected. And so that, 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 that's, that's murmuring. Amen. And, and here's the thing. This is important. This is important as a leader, Brother Mason. Not always, but people sometimes tend to complain or grumble about things that are important to them let me set it straight um, it, it, overall I'm a, it's according to certain areas of my life but overall most part I'm a little bit of a neat freak okay a little bit of a neat freak and so if I was to enter to an establishment and it was left right topsy turvy that's probably just going to be on my nerve a little bit and the reason being is because that's something that is important to me now, now listen to me, there's just a little bit of teaching here. Here's the thing, if they tend to complain or grumble about something, it may be because that's something that is important to them. You watching me? When it comes to the church, for instance, let's give a for instance. Pastor, I just can't believe, over in the corner, 
There was some dirt on the floor. I don't know who janitors around here, but they didn't quite get it. Or, I'm, this is just a for instance. They just didn't quite get it. You know, and I'm just trying to pacify that. You know what that's telling me? Watch this. You know what that's telling me? That's something that, that's important to them. They might be a good candidate for using a vacuum cleaner in the church then. No, I, I'm serious. Listen to me. I, I'm serious. I, I, and, and, and brother, can I talk, brother Fred? You, I know you. Years ago, brother Fred came to me, and it wasn't in the spirit of complaint. It was just in the spirit of, of concern that he came to me concerned if we could have some men's breakfasts or something like that. And you know what? I said, brother Fred, I said, if that's on your heart, this is what I said. I said, if that's on your heart, take care of it. And I wasn't mean in saying that, but you know what it is. Whenever something like that, a person has something to, to, to grumble, and I'm not saying he was grumbling, but whenever people seem to grumble or complain about something, it might be that they could be, they could, I'm saying could, I'm using that gingerly, could be that they, they might be a good person to feel that position of whatever it is. Amen. <laughs> Sorry. Because <laughs> you'll find out how sensitive the area is that they're murmuring about. Say, well, you have a problem with that? Well, why don't you take care of that? I used to, a long time ago, I had this little comic of the peanuts. I shared this with me years ago, back in the day when uh, we set our annual calendar and everything. It was peanuts. I don't remember. It might have been Lucy there sitting there with her little advice booth, maybe. Is that right, the right one? Someone came up and said they had a problem, all this. And she said something like, she says, well, give me three ways that the problem can be solved. They came to her with a problem, wanting answers. She says, well, if you know so much about what the problem is, then you give me three possible solutions how to solve the problem. Everybody doing all right? We're having fun, aren't we? But here's, the, here's the, where the rubber meets the road. This is a common phrase, man. It's part of my life. I always use it. Everybody knows how to skin the cat except the one holding the cat. Everybody's got an idea how it should be done, how it ought to be run, how this ought to be done. But you're not the one holding the cat, are you? It's easy to have an opinion when you're the one with the blade and the tail of the cat in your hand. Easy. Well... Boy, that's good teaching, Pastor. That's good teaching. So I don't know this for a fact, but I would deduce that probably they got their information from the, the grapevine of the grumbling and the complaining. And so whenever they got that, they called the multitude of the disciples together in verse 2. And notice what their verbiage here is in verse number 2. If you put it back up there, Sister McGee, it says, they told to them, said, it is not reason. This, the Grecians being neglected. It is not reason that we, the 12 apostles, should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, I want you, people with a negative thinking tonight will say, well, those apostles thought that serving tables was beneath them. That was not their point. That was not their drive, nor did they think that at all. Nor did they think that at all. They weren't saying that serving tables were beneath them. What they were saying was this. It simply wasn't the primary purpose that they had been called to. And watch me. Because here's, here's a known fact. You might, be a, you might be a jack of all trades and master of none. And you got all kinds of things going on. And here's all my adages coming out in one night, so write them down for my funeral, all right? But the fact of the matter is this. When you get too many irons in the fire, none of them get hot. That's right. You get, you get too many irons in the fire, none of them get hot. So whenever they were approaching the, the multitude concerning the scenario, they weren't stating this is, this is a either-or situation. We're, we're just going to have to decide. They're either going to have to, the Grecians going to have to be taken care of with administration. That's going to happen. Or 
we're going to have to minister and pray. That's all we got. We got an either-or situation. That's not the way that they were approaching it. This was not an either-or situation. They believed that both could be taken care of, but not necessarily by the same people. Did the Grecians need minister too? Absolutely. That was very vital and very important. I'm going to come from this from two different directions. Very vital and important that the Grecians be taken care of. Maybe they're being fed. Maybe there's some monetary goods. Maybe all that seems very temporal. But yes, it was necessary for them to be taken care of. There was a missionary years ago to the land of India, and they pointed out uh, to the people that was criticizing them because they were helping with some of the needy people in India. They made this comment to those people that was criticizing them. They said, I don't know if you understand this or not, but the souls of the people are, rare, are, are, are rather securely fastened to their bodies. You understand what was just said? They said, we're ministering to the needs of people, maybe just a bodily surface thing, but their soul is greatly tied to that body. Uh-huh. Someone say amen. And so the idea is this. Both, both the ministration of the Grecians and the ministry and the prayer, both of those are absolutely important. They are necessary. But there was one out of those that did take priority over the other concerning the Apostles, tending to the widows was a good thing. But listen to pastor tonight. Listen, it is possible sometimes even for good things to threaten the ministry of the word. You hear me? It, it doesn't just have to be something negative and bad. Good things can threaten the ministry of the word. Have Jesus come in the house where two sisters and Mary and Martha are. Martha is busy in preparation for the Lord and that good thing she was doing for the Lord threatened her time like Mary had at sitting at the feet of Jesus and hearing his word. Good to prepare for the Lord, but that good thing was threatening her time of sitting at his feet and hearing the words of the master, which Jesus said himself, that is a good thing hearing my word, that shall not be taken away from Mary. So Martha, you're causing something good preparation for me to threaten something even better, and that's hearing my word. Someone say amen. 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 And so he goes on, and that's in Luke 10 if anybody needs to know. But one of these things that they are focusing on, yes, is somewhat temporal, while the other thing pertains to the eternal prayer prayers whenever they are uttered prayers never die we have spoke about that before god's word it is an eternal word the flower may fade right the grass may wither the flower may fade but the word of god will stand forever amen so it is a eternal eternal thing even whenever jesus in john i believe it is in the gospel of john particularly he has fed people with loaves and fishes man they're overwhelmed by the miracle of the loaves and the fishes what they receive they come back again one of the times they come back, guess what? He don't have the loaves and the fishes. You know, Bob's kind of looking over at Elroy and saying, what are we doing? He don't have the food. And he starts to talk to them about them, the bread of life that comes from heaven. He says, yeah, he called them out. Yeah, I know you was here for the literal bread. But let me talk to you about the spiritual the spiritual bread, both necessary, absolutely, but one is only for this lifetime, and the other is for ever. Someone say amen. So the one is for this life, one is forever. And so with that, the church, the church must be balanced. The church must be balanced with its focus. The, 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 the balance of the church comes with having a focus that goes outside of these walls coupled with a focus that remains with those that are inside these walls. And the way that the church becomes imbalanced is when you have too much of an outward focus, when you have too much of an outward focus, that might lend to problems going on within the church not being addressed. You have too much of an outward focus, that might lend to a problem of a lack of discipleship of those new converts you're getting. But you also need to have a good, a good 
within focus, too much of a good though, too much of a within focus will leave you and the mission field that's beyond these four walls, you'll soon forget that. And you'll just have a social club. I know you, you know me. We can drink together, have fellowship with one another. I know you real well, and I'm not comfortable about that. And so too much of an inward focus, we'll, we'll make programs, we'll have committees, we'll have everything that just concerns who's already in this place. And we'll forget about everybody that's outside the doors that don't have what you have, experienced what you experience, have even heard of God. So there's got to be balance within the church. Someone say amen. And so he says, here's, here's, the, here's the thing. We, we can't leave the word of God and serve tables. So we need to find some brethren. We need to find some brethren in verse 3. Look out for seven people. And here's their qualifications. These, these seven. And then say, well, what's Jewish towns, just the Mishnah, which, which is the oral tradition of the Jews, was just basically this, that if a Jewish town, if there was any business to be conducted, it was to be conducted by seven men. That was just a law. So that might be where the seven is tied into right here. But nevertheless, they find seven men. And if you'll read through their names, and I'm not going to read through them again, but if you'll look at them in verse number five, read through their names. All of those names are Greek names. They're all Greek names. And there's seven of them. So before we had whatever the 12 apostles that's kind of juggling responsibilities here, serving tables and prayer and ministry of the word. Somebody's feeling neglected, so we need to take care of this. So they say, let's find seven more people that can take care of this issue and we'll stay with prayer and the ministry of the word because that's what we've been called to. One man said years ago that it was better to put 10 men to work than to try to do the work of 10 men. (laughs) Amen. And so the qualifications are, that, that these people, these seven, be of honest report. Now, these are seven p- people that's going to do the ministration of the widows, supplying food and, if so, monetary goods to the widows. And yet the Bible says, let those that do this be of honest, everybody say honest, report. You know what that boils down to? Let them have a good reputation. Hmm? Honest reputation. Let's deduce some things here. Reputation isn't built in a day. Whether good or bad. Reputation is not built in a day. It takes time to build reputation. I'm just deducing here from Scripture. So it's a good possibility that they were just not believers yesterday. But they were to be of an honest reputation. And look at else. They were to be full of the Holy Ghost. Now, this, this is my inroad, okay? I know they're, they're not preaching. They're not playing music on the platform. They're not teaching a Sunday school class. But even at the basic of serving tables, of ministration to the widows, say, let them be full of the Holy Ghost. And wisdom. Now, the Bible speaks about two different kinds of wisdom, a wisdom that is from above and a wisdom that is not from above. <laughs> I guess that'd be wisdom from below. I don't know. <laughs> wisdom from here. But a wisdom from above, wisdom not from above. The Holy Ghost, I believe, supplies with, with that wisdom that is from above. Amen. And then just our natural human wisdom is wisdom that is not from above or wisdom from below, from right here. He says you need both. You need both. There's times, granted, in real life, even church circumstances, I lean on my human wisdom. But there are other times, honey, I'm lost trying to find it with my human wisdom, and i got to tap into something else that's beyond this life. And it's wisdom from above. <laughs> you wouldn't believe some of the calls we get around here, people seeking for advice. I'm serious. Just Penrod could vouch for me. Just a few weeks ago, I got a phone call. I don't know, but I guess I helped out when it was all said and done. I guarantee you I had to tap into a wisdom beyond this world in order to help in any measure or any way. Amen. And so he said those are the qualifications, honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, and wisdom, 
said, so whenever we have this in place, those are gonna, that's going to be the, the qualifications for these people we're going to set over ministering uh, to, to, to these people that, that, that are widows and need monetary help or food help. Now, this is just good for everybody just to know. Years ago when we were traveling to have a, a friend in Houston, Texas, preach for County was a good friend. His name's Robert Win- Wimberly. He told me something then whenever we was evangelizing that I kind of took back on my back molars to always chew on just remember, try to hold the heart. And this is what he said. He said, Brother McGee, he said, always remember this, that it's easier to give someone a position than it is to take it away. And so if it ever seems, Bishop, that I'm dragging my feet making the decision, it's because I know it's going to be a whole lot easier doing this right now than it is to retract that later. And so that's the reason why I'm considering honest report. So it's why I'm considering full of the Holy Ghost. And maybe they got some common sense. That'd be great too. Throw that in for a full Happy Meal, you know what I'm saying? So common sense, that goes a long way. That's a long fry, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Amen. But look what's happening here in the early church. Look what's happening in the early church. Uh, organization. Organization is happening here in the early church. God is a God of order. He spoke in 1 Corinthians 14 where he's talking about all the spiritual gifts. He said, let everything be done decently and in order. He is a God. He is a God of order. When he talks about whenever one would prophesy, let there two or three that would judge the matter. That's order. Uh Uh-huh. That if there's tongues interpretation, if there's tongues, let there be three, two or three of that by course. That's order. We go back to creation. You see how everything was done? The day separated from the night and then the land and the water and then he brought the animals up on there? That's order. Why would he bring animals on something lacking vegetation to sustain it? Right? Huh? That is all order. He's such an orderly God. Every morning when I wake up, the time might be a little different because we change times around here. (laughs) But the seasons change as well. But I know the sun's going to come up tomorrow morning. That's order. I know that one rotation around on this, on this globe, one revolution, that's going to be a day. That's order. As a matter of fact, if you go to Ezekiel 37, where Ezekiel was taken to the valley of dry bones, and lo, they were very dry, he says. What starts happening in order to get from that position to an exceedingly great army? He's prophesying to them. Bone come to bone. Sinew, muscles and such come upon that bone. Skin covers them and breath is put in them. They're exceeding great army. Order. Right? He's a God of order. And that's what's happening right here in the, in the New Testament church. There is order that has taken place. God, through the apostles, he's helping people find their place. And he's distributing jobs to those that are there. And look what happens. When order, when order is brought to the early church and the right people find the right job, and they're distributed appropriately. Look what happens. The Word of God, when things get in order, the Word of God increases, and the disciples are multiplied. That's what verse 7 says. The Word of God increases, and the disciples are multiplied. And listen, the Word of God increasing, and the disciples multiplying, we can't draw, we can't just put our arms around that and say, all of that was the result of the preacher. No! So you got it wrong. All of that is not the result of the preacher. All of that is the effect of every single individual involved in the body of Christ that's doing their part of the job, their work at various levels, including the daily management of the widows, all of that. All of that contributes to the Word of God increasing and the disciples multiplying. Everybody did their job. And since everybody did their job, the apostles that enabled the apostles to focus on the ministry of the Word and the prayer, they were allowed to keep the main thing the main thing for them. Uh-huh. It's called order. It's called prioritizing the right thing for the apostles. Years ago, maybe not so long ago, years ago, churches fell into the misconception that a pastor was to do everything. And I'm not uncomfortable saying this. 
everything. They were to mow the lawn. They were to clean the restrooms, clean the church. They were to teach the Sunday school classes, teach the home Bible studies, drive the vans for outreach. They were to organize the meals for the potlucks. They were to set up for them. They were to, shut, they were to tear everything down. They were to visit the sick. They were to go to the nursing homes and have special services there. <laughs> now, you, you can start seeing very quickly, you do all that. Then whenever it comes time to present the word and teaching, you could be suffering a little bit. And then whenever we suffer in the handling of the word, and there's no prayer to bring no power or anointing to that word, then we have just a good lecture, maybe not even that good. But we have a spilling of words from the pulpit that without any prayer, without any diligence, might not impact the people that are sitting on those pews like it need to impact. Therefore, therefore, we have a decrease, if you will, of the word, and the disciples aren't multiplied as much. But when everybody does their part, and everybody finds their job, and they get in, and they put their shoulder underneath the load, and, and I, don't, I'm not, I don't have a... Sword to grind, all right? Amen. But whenever that happens, then the pastor or the ministry teams, for that matter, are able to put the main thing, prioritize what it should be priority in their lives and their positions, and this thing will just work a whole lot better. Amen. Because when things are prioritized, right, multiplication happens, and it has a domino effect, a domino effect from church organization. Amen. Simply put, when things start happening around the church, man, we can, we, we, we can just put structure around what the Spirit of God is already doing. Does that make sense to you? In other words, instead of trying to get something going, find out what's going and just bring some organization to it now so it can be better. So Stephen is very important here in Acts 6. Stephen is the transition man between... Peter and Paul. Peter again primarily to the Jewish people. Paul later primarily to the Gentile people. And in between is Stephen talking to the Greek-speaking Jews. He, he, he transitioned between two worlds. What was mainly just over here in Jerusalem is about ready to break out into all the world. Starting with verse number 8. And I'll try to do good with this. Maybe good should be interpreted quick. Try to be quick with this. Acts 6 and verse number 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Now here is a very high watermark trait for Stephen. He's full. Fullness, outside of it just being faith and power, and we know the other one's Holy Ghost and wisdom, all those things that were qualifications. He is full of faith, full of power. He's full of Holy Ghost. He's full of wisdom. He's full of. Many times in the New Testament, not always, but many times, being full of or filled with both mean to be controlled by. And so we have a man here then that is controlled by faith, he's controlled by power, he's controlled by the Holy Ghost, and he's controlled by wisdom. And look here, this guy who is to be ministering to the widows, now the Bible says, here he is, he has great wonders and miracles among the people, and Stephen did great wonders and miracles among the people. He was not an apostle of the twelve. And there's miracles happening by his hand. I just want to point that out because there's a lot of yahoos out here that tell you miracles were only for the apostles. That was something that was directly related to them and nobody else. And they're not for our day. Hogwash! Even Stephen, who was not an apostle of the twelve, great miracles and signs happened through him. And yes, it's for you as well. Amen. And so they have these synagogues then that happen. Synagogues for different segments and groups of people history says there were 480 synagogues in Jerusalem 
480 synagogues in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, it only took 10 adults to constitute a synagogue. And so there was 480 synagogues in Jerusalem. So you had these things all over the place. You think you got it bad because there's 37 churches in Mount Carmel? Try 480 in Jerusalem. <laughs> but look at this. One of them in Cilicia. One of them of Cilicia. Now the city of Cilicia, this region of Cilicia was in Asia Minor. And the, the principal city, I should say, the principal city of Cilicia was Tarsus. I'm just pointing this out for food for thought. You remember later whenever Saul gets converted to Paul, we learn that Saul was of the city of Tarsus. He's called Saul of Tarsus. With that in mind, when you read verse number, verse, the latter part of verse number 9, disputing with Stephen, it were these different synagogues and these people in these different synagogues, Cilicia being one of them, that they disputed with Stephen. Look at verse 10 now. And they were not able to resist the wisdom, look at that, and the spirit by which he spake. In other words, these people from the synagogues took him to task concerning his preaching, his doctrine, all these things. And they disputed with him, but they could not contend with his wisdom, with his power. They could not contend with what he was saying. They couldn't resist it. Now, this is totally speculation. I'm just saying, what if? Because we know that Saul was there whenever Stephen was stoned. They, the stoners laid their garments at his feet. What if, this is just a what if, I wonder if Saul of Tarsus may have been one of those people that had disputed with Stephen and come to an impasse and said, you know what, I can't resist what this guy is saying. Just, a, or just, just, just something, this is where you go deeper than just what the words on the page and you think. Just wonder if maybe that could have been said. The Bible says in Luke 21, 15, they knew they were going to come up against stuff like this because the Bible says in Luke 21, 15, Christ had already spoke to the disciples. He said, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. He said, you're going to speak and they're not going to be able to contend with what you are saying. And so here's what happens. Here's what happens. When you can't, Mark, this is what happens. When you cannot defeat the message, stage two is go for the messenger. When you can't contend with the message, go for the messenger. And so that's what they do. We can't resist what he's saying. We'll see if we can resist him. We can't do anything with the message that maybe we can do something with the messenger. And the Bible says there in verse number 11 that they suborned men, which basically means they hired some false witnesses. That's just a fancy word to say, that they hired some false witnesses. And they began to take statements that Stephen made that were true and twist them. That's the way it works, folks. Most of what happens in the world today, perverting of truth, it's just that, the perversion of truth. It's taking truth and twisting it. Because mm -hmm. they can't be original to come up with anything on their own. All they do is pervert and twist the truth. And that's what they were doing with Stephen. And so Stephen goes through some steps here that mirror very much so Jesus' own trial. Because if you'll remember Jesus in his trial, he had false, he had false witnesses that were, that were hired to be against him and said that he was a blasphemer, right? And all of this stuff was said. And, and here's Stephen, he's same thing, false witnesses against him. He's accused of attacking the law. They accused Stephen of attacking the law and Moses. They did the exact same garbage to Jesus. But you know what the end result is? Jesus was executed, and that's where they're getting ready to take Stephen. To be executed. Now look at this. Look what the Bible says, if you will, in verse number 14. Verse number 14. So they set up these false witnesses in verse 13, saying that he spoke blasphemy against the holy place and the law. Verse 14. For we have heard him say, Stephen say, that this Jesus of Nazareth shall, everybody say shall, destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place. What are we referencing? They're referencing the temple. He's going to destroy. He shall destroy this place. Now, listen. 
This is already post-resurrection days. All right? But Stephen's saying they shall, he, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place. Go with me, if you will, to John chapter number 2 and verse number 19. John 2 and verse number 19. We have in Scripture where Jesus spoke about he himself. He said, you guys destroyed this temple in three days. I'll raise it up. All right? And it, he tells us what he's referring to concerning this temple. It wasn't a literal temple per se that he was talking about. But this is what it says in John 2, 19. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building. It took us 46 years to build this temple. You think you're going to destroy it in three days? You're going to have it back together? And wilt thou rear it up in three days? Look at verse 21. It, it reveals this to us. But he spake of the temple of his body. He's saying, you destroy this physical body that I have, and in three days, count them off, I am going to come up. I am resurrecting. But there's more to it than that. Because the Old Testament tabernacle, temple of Solomon, temple of Zerubbabel, Herod's temple, all of that, all of those old temple things, the sacrifices that took place, the priesthood that did all of their activity in the temple, all of that was really about Christ. Yes, all of that was about him in type. Whenever they killed Jesus, the purposes of the temple kind of faded away in the background. They were destroyed. Because what the temple was in type, the sacrificing of sacrifices so there would be blood to push the sins forward a year, everything that the temple stood for in type, Jesus was in substance. Needing, needing a high priest to go in before them to atone for those sins, needing somebody to mediate, what that was in type, Jesus was in substance. He was the mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The Bible says. So see, after this temple had been destroyed and resurrected, Christ is telling them, not only is this temple you destroyed, but all the types and symbols of that old temple is done away with. He says, because you no longer need a high priest like you did in the Old Testament, because me as your high priest has entered in one time into the holy place with my own blood, and there's no, look at Hebrews, there's not necessary anymore any blood of bulls and goats or none of that stuff. Why? Because I superseded all of that. Now, now you don't need all these sacrifices of lambs and things of that nature anymore because I have come and I have superseded all that. With my own blood once for all, I've taken care of that. So Stephen said, note Stephen here, this is post-resurrection that Stephen is telling them or that they said, that he said, Jesus Christ shall destroy this place. But Jesus' temple, his body had already been destroyed and resurrected. What are you talking about, Stephen? Stephen was just very simply relaying an idea. That the ideas that the temple used to be, it's types and shadows. He says over time, they're just going to become dismantled. Because it's going to take time for that to happen. But it's already taken place in action because of Jesus dying and resurrected. All of that is annulled now. And all of that's not necessary because of Jesus Christ. But it's going to take some time for the people to realize it. Because we even read after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they're still bringing sacrifices. They are. They're still bringing sacrifices. Why? Because it hadn't set in yet. That the purpose for the Old Testament temple is not what it needs to be anymore because you have Christ the temple of Christ. You have a high priest in Christ. You have blood that was with all purity in Christ. So he says, it shall be destroyed. It's going to take some time for this to settle in the hearts and the minds of the people. Now look, I'm telling you, we're doing it. Glory to God. He's going to change the customs and, and the seasons and all these different things are going to come to pass. Now look, verse 15. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him, Stephen, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. The phrase, the face of an angel, it means this. It's the description. The description is of a person who is close to God and reflects some of his glory as a result of being in his presence. 
It's all encompassed in all that phrase. That it's a description of someone that's been close to God. And therefore, they are emitting, if you will, illuminating some of the glory of him because they had been in his presence. Who else in Scripture had a face or a countenance that radiated with light or glory? The Old Testament, we read in Exodus 34 of a man by the name of Moses. The Bible says it came to pass when Moses came down from the Mount of Sinai with what? The two tables of testimony in his hand. The Old Covenant. The Old Covenant. With the two tables of testimony in his, in Moses' hand. That when he came down from the Mount, that Moses wist not, he didn't know, that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. What, what happened? He'd been on the mount for 40 days and 40 nights. He'd been in very close proximity to the great God of glory. He experienced his majesty. So much so when he came down, if we could say it as the New Testament said it, his face, did, did, his face was as an angel. He was emitting some of the glory that he had, if you will, absorbed while he was on the mount. And he had in his hands the old covenant. And so the people are trying to lay a finger on Stephen and saying, Stephen, you're against Moses. But this whole thing with his face shining and saying, no, he's not against Moses. He's like Moses. But the difference is this. Moses came down with a no covenant. But Stephen is showing up with a better and a new covenant. Oh, I'm feeling Holy Ghost power. Glory. Look what the Bible says. And I'll close with this tonight because I know you're all getting tired and you want to have a snack before you watch TV and go to bed. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 7. But if the ministration, watch it now, but if the ministration of death, that's reference to the old covenant. That's all the old covenant law could do. The law could say you're a sinner but couldn't do anything about it. It left you dead in your sins. That's the old covenant. It's the ministration of death. He says, if it, but if the ministration of death, the old covenant, written and engraven in stones, which it was, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses... For the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away with? The old covenant wasn't always going to last. It was going to be superseded. God had a plan all the way back then that that was going to serve a time, but there was going to come another covenant. Verse 8, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit, new covenant, be rather glorious? For if the ministration of the condemnation be glory, the old covenant, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. Look at it. In other words, it's saying in comparison, in comparison, the old covenant didn't have any glory compared to this new covenant. He says in verse 11, For if that which is done away was glorious, the old covenant, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Now, I don't, have, I don't have no Bible for this. I'm just thinking. If it's much more, if the glory of the new covenant is much more, much more glorious, then I would deduce tonight then, Brother Zach, we could take Moses and stand him beside Stephen and somebody's face is going to be shining more than the other because Moses was a representation of the old covenant that could only tell people you're sinners but you're dead in your sin. But in Stephen's new covenant, it could say you are sinners but there is a way, there is a venue for all that to change. And that's more glory. That's a greater way to glory than what they had known in time past. He's not against Moses. He's come to fulfill what all of that has led up to through Christ Jesus. Stand with me tonight. Hallelujah. Woo! Thank God. Who's ready to work? Who's ready to find their place so that this, this organism and organization can do what she has been made to do? Huh? Keep the murmuring. If you want to speak, Talk to somebody that can do something about it. 
I don't want to be playing the old tape I heard it through the grapevine in my office. It sours the grapes. <laughs> Amen. But with that being said, then we should have a, a mind and a focus then. Then God, I want to be full of the Holy Ghost. I want to have an honest, an honest report. I want a good rep- reputation. I want to be full of wisdom, both from above and practical. So I can be used in the kingdom of God very mightily. And whenever you start being used in those things, look at Stephen. It flourished. Even miracles happened through him. But it was just his starting point. You listening? His starting point was just daily ministration of the widows. See what happens whenever you start operating in where you know you can operate, that God doesn't just explode that. Huh? And open up then greater doors, newer heights, that perhaps you've never even seen, but you won't until you do what you can do. We can bow our heads in this place tonight. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.